Let me encourage you, if you have a Bible we're gonna, we're, uh, with you, we're going to be in Psalm 143 this morning. Let me encourage you to go ahead and open and turn there so that you can follow along as we draw our lessons from the Scripture. It's been a while since I've said it, but we, we seek to emphasize that we believe the Word is the Word that works. There's power in this. And so though I'll say a lot of things today, it's really trying to explain the Word and, and, and bring the Word to bear on our lives uh, because we really believe that this is God's Word. It's inerrant. It's powerful. It's sufficient for our life. It has authority. And so when we come to it, we seek to conform our lives to it. And so I just I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that, that you and I together be in it. And, and this is an opportunity for us to sit before, the God, before God himself and hear from him. And so Psalm 143, uh, as, you're, as you're kind of getting settled in the psalm, I just want to give you a, a couple of structural I, points to it just so that you can be ready to kind of follow along and, and look for these things. It, it's written by David. We know this from the heading. It's a psalm of David. Uh, we don't know the circumstance in which he's writing. We're not, we're not told he doesn't give us a more clues, and there's no historical connection that, that ties us directly to this psalm. But like many of his psalms, we get to hear him complaining. Um, I'm reminded, I, when we did Psalm 23, I'm reminded of Matthew Henry's quote that said, many of Psalm, David's psalms are filled with complaint. This one, speaking of Psalm 23, was filled with comfort. This is one that's filled with complaint. So he's complaining, but he's also complaining with hope. He's not just angry or upset or filled with despair. He's, he's hopeful in his offering up complaint. And so we get to see him do that. It's a lament, and so, so that's the reason for his complaining is he's lamenting, but it's also classified as a penitential psalm, meaning that it's, it's a place in which, it's a psalm in which he's confessing sin. It's a general confession. There's not a specific confession. Like last week, we studied from, you know, Jeremy Newborn was here, and he preached from Psalm 51, um, and, and that's a penitential psalm, specifically David confessing his own sin and seeking forgiveness and restoration of relationship and intimacy with the Lord. Here we see the same thing happening, but it's more general in classification. And so, uh, but, it, but it is, it's classified as a penitential psalm. And then within the psalm, I want you to pay attention to this. This is, a, this is something as you learn to grow and study the Bible on your own, it's something that you can be paying attention to. There's a chiastic flow. So it's a chiasmus or a chiasm is, is, is what some people call it. Uh, basically, what that means is there's a, there's a mirror image in the second half of the psalm to the first half of the psalm. So, so he, he's walking through and he's laying out certain themes and certain points in the first half of the psalm. And then we get to the selah or the pause. And then mirror images all his ideas around one central point or theme uh, in the second half of the psalm. So, so a, a practical, let me just illustrate this so that... Maybe it will be a little bit more clear. The, the, the phrase, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, is a chiasm. There's a mirror image, and together those reflective phrases build a specific point, right? And so, so that's what's happening in this psalm. But in this psalm, you're going to find that there is, a, there is a central point right at the heart of the psalm that everything else is laid out from. So we're, we're building into this central point, and then we're going to build out from the central point. So it's a chiasm, and that's what, that's what it's called. It's a literary tool. You find it all over the Scripture, uh, but it is what it is. 
But here's what's going to happen. These themes, we're going to see his, we're going to see him recognize and, and admit or confess God's nature. We're going to see him confess his own sin and, and ultimately his dependence and the urgency of his need uh, for the Lord to work that's all built out of a central desire of his heart. And, and, and so, so we're going to walk through that. You're going to see it. We're going to move to it, and then we're going to move fr- from it as we read. And then as we study, we're going to try to draw it all together so that it is helpful to us, but also so that it's applicable to our life. So let's, let's read, then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in the darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us now as our God, as our, as our authority, our supreme and divine authority, as, as the one who we get to call Father. And would you buy your work Cut away the flesh that surrounds our heart and produce in us, uh, uh, well, as we sang, produce in us a clean heart. Make us more like your son. That we would be able to speak these words, that we'd be able to cry out to you in this way, not because we're trying to get our own way, but because we're trying to just be close to you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you know, I've been not preaching for several weeks, and so I've been actually preparing for this sermon for about seven. So I won't give you everything that I've learned in seven weeks in the next 45 or 50 minutes. But I, the, the thing that has come back over and over and over again is, is, is this, this theme of dependence and desire and how closely woven together these two things are. And, and as I've been reading it, there's a hymn that's been resonating in my mind, and I'm, I'm actually glad we didn't sing it this morning. I don't know if it's on our song list of songs that we would sing, but, but I was thinking it, it speaks to this. The themes are so woven together. It's a, it's a hymn called, I Need Thee Every Hour. You know that hymn? 
It's by a woman named Annie Hawks. Uh, I didn't know anything about this song other than the song uh, until I, I decided I wanted to know more since it was on my mind so much. But I, let me just share some of the verses that she wrote all the way back in 1872. She wrote, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour, in joy or pain, come quickly and abide, or life is in vain. I need thee every hour, teach me thy will, and thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour, most holy one. O oh, make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. And she wrote all five of those verses that she... Now, I'll tell you about how she came to them in just a moment, but Robert Lowry, somebody that she knew who was also into uh, writing music and hymns, he, she, she gave him these verses and he added the music or the melody and then the chorus, which is, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. And that has been stuck in my head for weeks. There's worse songs to be stuck in your head, right? Like there's a whole lot of, I think they call them earworms that just drive you nuts. But that tune and that phrase led me to those verses and I began to think about it and I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much here. And it's, it's so, there, there seemed to be such a parallel because her dependence and her desire was for the Lord. And I began to think, well, why in the world did she write this hymn? So I start looking, and I'm trying to find out, you know, you, the history behind the song and things like that. And I don't know anything about her, don't know anything about the song other than the song. Found out that she's written over like 400 hymns that the church used to sing, and this is really the only one that's sung popularly still being sung. Let me say it that way. But later in life, she was interviewed. Somebody asked her about the, the song, and this is what she said in that interview. Whenever my attention is called to it, I am conscious of great satisfaction in the thought that I was permitted to write the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, and that it was wafted out to the world on the wings of love and joy, rather than under the stress of a great personal sorrow, with which it has so often been associated in the minds of those who sing it. So what you're going to learn and what you're going to hear in just a minute is that she wasn't in great personal distress or sorrow when she wrote the song. She just had this love and joy and desire for Jesus and recognized how much she needed him and wrote it. But then as people began to sing it and use it as ministry to their own soul and the souls of others, they recognized the weightiness of life and the suffering and speaking of the need for the Lord. Here's, here's She goes on. I remember well the morning... Many years ago, when in the midst of daily cares of my home, she's sweeping the floor, washing dishes. And that may be troublesome for <laughs> some of you, I don't know. But this is what she's doing. <clears throat> I was so filled with a sense of nearness to the master that wondering how one could live without him, either in joy or in pain, these words, I need thee every hour, were ushered into my mind, the thought at once taking full possession of me. For myself, the hymn was prophetic rather than expressive of my own experience at the time that it was written. I did not understand why it was so touched the great throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until years long after when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of a great loss, that I understood something of the comforting in the words 
I had been permitted to write and give out to others in hours of sweet security, in, in my hours of sweet security and peace. Now when I hear them sung, as I have sometimes, by hundreds of voices in chorus, I find it difficult to think they were ever consciously my own or, or penned by my own hand. So it struck me as I was reading that and learning about what led this woman to read or to write a hymn that's so often used as a comforting song, as a song to minister in times of pain. The thing that led her to write it was just the understanding of dependence and desire to be close to Jesus. And then it got me thinking that this lament of David's, that we have no idea what circumstances surround it or what situation he's facing specifically. Maybe these words weren't in response to some immediate circumstance, but the culmination of life's lessons that the Lord had taught him. Like Annie, maybe David was just going about his daily routine, doing chores, if you will, when he's reminded of all the Lord has done to deliver him and be near him. And how desperately he longs for that to continue. He'd known hardship, we know it. We, 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 know that, we know that he'd known difficulty. It's clear in the Psalms, and especially those that we know the circumstances that surround them. We, we know that he understands what it is to suffer and to, to endure. He knew the Lord and had seen him work in and through those times, but he'd seen the Lord work even when he wasn't suffering, when he was recognizing the Lord as his shepherd and, and recognizing the power and the presence and the, and, the, and the guidance and the leadership. We know that he knew Lord's, the Lord's presence. We know that he understood the, these things, but, but maybe, maybe it's all of these things culminating to this reality that led him to the, to, to the result of this psalm. Maybe, maybe it wasn't to answer God in some hardship, but to recognize that he can't live a day without the Lord, no matter what the day holds. Sometimes I think that we think in the days that are easy, when it goes as planned. You know, when we wake up, we put our clothes on, we walk out the door, and whether you're walking into some business to go to work to or whatever the day has in front of you, whatever your calendar holds, we th I, th I think, we believe, I think we've come under this idea that we can handle this, that we got this. What if we learned the lesson, how different would our lives look if we really figured out we don't got it? I mean, the imagery is powerful, right? His soul thirsts for the Lord like a parched land. It's dry and cracked. It's dirt that's unable to produce or sustain life. I even feel thirsty just imagining what it's like to live in that place, that arid place. And the only water that would quench it was the Lord. His presence, his provision, his protection, his working, his, his closeness. The Lord alone is able to satisfy David's thirsty soul. And the Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty 
souls. And that got me to thinking. What if this isn't just the message and central theme of this psalm? What if this is the message and central theme of all of Scripture? What if, what if this is the lesson that God has been teaching us in everything we've endured and experienced in our lives? I mean, the Psalms clearly point to it in other places. The sons of Korah in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Not just any God you can come and point to. Not just any, any divine being that you might be able to make up or, or pretend exists. But the living God. The one with power and presence in our lives. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, David in Psalm 63 verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As I thought about it further, it didn't just stop in the Psalms. I mean, if you consider all the way back to the garden, in the garden at the fall of mankind, into sin, the, the rebellion of mankind against God. Don't eat the fruit. Well, we ate the fruit. We want the fruit. The great loss wasn't the garden. It was a loss, but it wasn't the greatest loss. The great loss wasn't the curse that came because of their sin. That was a loss, but not the greatest loss. The greatest loss was walking with God in the cool of the garden. Maybe, maybe at that time, maybe in the description of that, maybe there's no more startling words than they, when they heard God in the garden, they feared and they hid. Their sin had cut them off from him. That's the great loss of the garden. That, that's the greatest loss of the fall into sin. And, and, and then the whole theme of the Bible pushing towards the end where we see in Revelation where God is making all things new and Jesus proclaims, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm making all things new. Uh, everything, new heaven, new earth. And that's amazing. It's a win for us, Right? But what we get is not just new heaven and new earth. But a reunion with him where the veil is removed and we get to see him with our own eyes, touch him with our own hands, stand in him in, in presence with him with our own body. We get him. What if this is the whole lesson of the scripture that finally and, 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 and ultimately we would recognize our desire, every desire that we've ever had is actually representative of the fact that we are missing him. And we're pretending that we can fulfill it or satisfy it with some other thing. Maybe David had just recognized in the course of life, doing his daily chores, I don't know, sweeping the floor in the palace. I don't know what kings did exactly in that day. Maybe he just sat around on the throne. I don't know. But it just dawned on him. All the hardships he'd endured, all the moments with the Lord he'd endured. I just want you. My desire is for you. My desire is so deep and strong that I, without you, I am like a dry and parched land. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls. This is what Jesus 
represented for people so that they could see God and experience the Father. And there, there, there's the moment where he's with his disciples at the end, and, and he's like, I'm going to heaven. And Philip's like, hey, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Just show us the Father. He says, Philip, haven't you been with me? Don't you know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've been with me, you've been with God. As he healed the lame and made the deaf hear and made the blind see, as he spent time with his people, fed the multitudes, and revealed the glory of God on earth, this is what Jesus was showing us. He's the one that satisfies. He's the one that fulfills. He's the one that will take that God-shaped hole in our heart and fill it up. And I know that there's people that talk about that God-shaped hole. And there's all kind of jokes we could make about it and ways we could deny it. But, but brother and sister, I think that's the theme of all of Scripture rooted right here in this psalm. Paul was able to pin letters like Philippians because he'd learned this lesson. He was able to count all things loss. He was able to live as if he had nothing to lose because in receiving Jesus, he had gained the greatest treasure of all so that he could say that is fulfilled. I am satisfied. And the only way in which I'm not content and I'm not satisfied is because I don't yet have the resurrection that I so long for. My desire is for the Lord. It is for him. And like, a, like my heart is a dry and parched land until I have all I can have of him. The Lord alone was going to be able to satisfy his thirsty soul. What if the central lesson of this psalm is the central lesson of all the scripture? Such that all the base of our desires and ambitions is that central desire. Even those, listen, just even think about it, how discontent our world is. How dissatisfied with the status quo that the world is. That they're looking to fill it with anything that'll, anything. Got to get a new car, got to get the right relationship, got to get the new house, got to get the right job. And we get those things, and what happens? Pretty soon the new wears off. We got to get the next thing. Even those who don't understand their desire of the Lord, there is a desire that will only ever be satisfied by the Lord. All the ambitions to make a way, to make a name, to, 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 to stand out, wouldn't they disappear? If our heart was satisfied and filled with the Lord. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't humility be the natural reaction of a person who recognized they had nothing else to gain? Because they'd suddenly no longer have to be, have it all figured out, have all this walk in arrogance and pride and pretend they got everything figured out? What if the lesson... A few weeks ago, Bob, one of the pastors here, what if the lesson, uh, uh, the, he, he asked this question in, in, when he preached a couple of weeks ago. He, he, he brought forward you know, David's hardship and Dave, Dave in a cave, as I remember at the beginning of that psalm. <clears throat> You're welcome. He, he says, what if, what if instead of looking at the suffering, we started asking, what's the lesson he's teaching me? What if at the heart of every lesson he's teaching us in our difficult times and our hardships is that we need the Lord? That whether we recognize it fully or not, our souls are thirsty for him and will only be quenched by having him.
What if the suffering that James refers to that gives way eventually to, to perfection, complete perfect and lacking in nothing, what if that complete perfect lacking in nothing is not a, a, a circumstance of life that has no trouble or a, a having of stuff that, that's, that in some way, somehow, for some time makes us feel okay and content, not attaining some stage of life, but what if perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing is having the Lord in his fullness? The more I think about it, the more I can't help but think that this is the central theme of all the Lord is doing in the Scripture to teach us how desperately we need him. And when we, even when we don't realize it, even when we don't realize that the Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls. But since it's summarized here in this psalm, I think there's so much this psalm has to say about this desire, about this need, this, this desperate, urgent need that we have. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty soul, souls. So we make our plea to him, we submit our will to his, and we entrust ourselves to him, we see David doing that across his psalm. He sets the example. He, he gives us the verbiage for and, and a pathway forward in it. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls. So we make our plea to him. We submit our will to his and entrust ourselves to him. Why, in, in all of this, let's just before we dig into those things, let's, let's just look and see why the Lord alone is the one able to satisfy what is it about him that makes him able to satisfy where nothing else will? What is it about him that makes him the water that will saturate a dry and parched land such that it will produce life? What is it about him that enables him to, to, for David to come before him at all? And he starts there and he ends there. In Psalm 143, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. And he hits on several attributes of God, several characteristics of who God is. And in the end, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve me in my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. The Lord alone is able to satisfy because the Lord alone is the merciful judge. Typically, when we long for mercy, we want mercy for ourselves because we recognize we're sinners. We see David doing that, right? Like, don't, don't judge me according to what I deserve because nobody can stand. This general confession, we're all broken. We want mercy. But David doesn't ask the Lord to deny his justice. He asks for mercy in, in line with justice. He asks for judgment and, and, and a hearing in line with the faithfulness and justice or righteousness of God. He longs for that. The Lord alone is the merciful judge. I mean, just think about this. So, so, so we see it everywhere we, we look today. I mean, the, the cancel culture is probably a, a great example of this because in it, we, we, we've all sinned against people and we've all been sinned against by people. So we've all sinned against someone and we've all been sinned against, right? That's the Reality of the world we live in is common to all mankind. We've all done it. But in cancel culture, what tends to happen is people highlight a particular sin, and they say that's the most heinous of all sins, and because you've sinned that way, you're worse than I am, and you're not even deserving of my attention or anyone else's, so you're canceled. You've, your life is ruined, your name is trash, and, and you're remembered as one of those people. 
that's absolutely irredeemable, un, un, unworthy of anything. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's shocking to me. That as this happens, the people who tend to be the loudest about it have the biggest skeletons in their closet that they will act like are there. Everybody's got this stuff. And I'm not trying to pretend that there's not serious issues in our world that need to be called out and voices need to be given. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that that's not true. What I'm saying is everybody who's accused somebody is guilty of something that they've done to someone else. It is true. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. David admits it right here. No one living is righteous before you. In God's standards, none of us measure up. We're all unholy. David says, I want your mercy, and I want it to be a just mercy. And here's the beautiful thing about that. When God expresses mercy, when he, when he gives compassion, when he is compassionate and tender toward those who are brokenhearted, he doesn't ignore the ways that they have oppressed and harmed others. He actually pays for them. He actually settles that. He doesn't ignore his justice or his righteousness in pursuit of mercy. Nor does he ignore mercy in offering justice. It's all wrapped up in the way that he determined that he would, that he would send his only son to come and die on the cross so that all the sins would be paid for. David, we know David. We learned about David last week. David was an adulterer. He's a murderer. Who's that man to be calling on God and pointing to enemies? Wasn't he, wasn't he Uriah's enemy? As, as he took advantage of Bathsheba, did, wasn't he her enemy? Oh, you can say, oh, but you know, it's consensual. Or... He's the king for crying out loud. What's she going to do? What's she going to say? And even if, it, even if that's not a way he acted as her enemy, what did he do to her husband? Did he not sin against Bathsheba in, in, the, in the killing of Uriah? Did he not sin against all the armies of God that were stood out there and said, hey, you know what, step back, making them complicit in, in, in a man's murder? Who is this man to call on God? Except that God's justice and his mercy are all woven together in the cross. He doesn't have to deny his righteousness. He doesn't have to pretend that David's worthy of his hearing. David understands that full well. He didn't understand exactly what he was looking forward to. He didn't understand exactly what God would do and how God would fulfill that justice. But he didn't ask God to deny his justice or his righteousness in receiving of mercy. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't say, hey, give me mercy. Ignore justice. Give justice to everybody else but me. He calls on the Lord who alone is the merciful judge who will not de de deny righteousness, who will not ignore sin, but because he knows we're incapable of paying for that sin, he paid it himself. So that as he withholds judgment and, and gives in compassion, he remains righteous. He is the just justifier. He is the righteous righteouser. He's the just. He, he remains just in his judgments and in his mercy. The Lord alone is able to. To do this, the Lord alone is the merciful judge. The Lord alone is the faithful master. 
I love how David didn't just speak of, of who God is, but he spoke of who he is in relation to God and how God's authority and, and presence, is, it's intertwined. His identity is, is almost inseparable from, from, from God's. I am your servant. Enter not into judgment with your servant. And he ends, for I am your servant. But he sees God's faithfulness in every turn. I, I, I don't have any right to tell you what to do. You're the authority. I'm the servant. I'm, 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 I'm submitting myself unto you. I'm, I'm coming to you as one who is just pleading with you, who is asking, not demanding. I am the one under authority here. He, he recognizes that. But he sees God's faithfulness at every turn. In the beginning, in your faithfulness, answer me. Right? He knows God is steadfast, that he's unending, that he, that he does all that he says he's going to do, that, that he never wavers, that he's always the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He is always there. His promises he will fulfill. God, or, or David understands God is faithful. Then, as we come to the end, he, he, he mentions it again, but he uses a different word. He comes in verse 12, and in your steadfast love, that's the chesed of God. It's his covenant faithfulness. We call it, we, we, it's, it's a struggle to interpret or translate into English. And so sometimes you'll see his, his uh, covenant mercy, or there's all kinds of different ways that it has, been, it has been translated. But the idea is God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his own nature, his faithfulness to do all that he said and by his nature intends to do. It wraps all of his work up into his identity and who God is and how God works because of who he is. And so David makes himself dependent upon that. I am your servant. Don't, don't hear me in your faithfulness, that, that, that your faithfulness, that you, would even, that, that you would even consider working with one like me. Now, you put these two together, the faithful master, the... the, the, the um, the, 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 the faithful master and the, and the merciful judge, you put them together. And, and I don't know that this is what is on John's mind in, in 1 John, but I think it's just another way for us to understand that this is the deep desire of all of our hearts, the deep, deep need that we all have, the urgent need we all have. And John, writing 1 John 1, 9, he writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We get to see his mercy working. We get to see his faithfulness working. We get to see his, his, his righteousness satisfied and fulfilled. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will make us righteous. So here he is, David, just, just recognizing, I, I'm, I'm coming to you. At your discretion, God. But remember who you are. For your name's sake, hear me, work, deliver me, protect me. I need you. I don't, who else would we call to that we could look at in this way? The Lord alone is the merciful judge. The Lord alone is the faithful master. The Lord alone can deliver from death to life. David, over and over through this, tells, tells the Lord, he, he confesses to the Lord, if you don't work, I'm done. Now, he's not hopeless because he's got the Lord to cry out to, but if the Lord doesn't work, he, he, he knows. If the Lord is not for him, it doesn't matter who's against him because he's done. 
right? If the Lord doesn't work, David is finished. He has no hope. But because he knows what the Lord is and who the Lord is and what the Lord can do, he knows the faithful and merciful nature of the Lord. He puts himself in, 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 and submits himself to because the Lord alone can deliver from death to life. And, and David recognizes this. He comes to this place where he remembers his works. I remember your works, the works of old. Now, we don't know exactly what works David's referring to. What We don't know exactly in the, in, in the scope, scope of his life where he's writing the psalm and, and what had transpired. We don't know that he already knows the, the promise of God to establish his throne forever, but maybe he does. We, we don't know whether he'd, he'd already seen the Lord uh, actually establish him as a king or if this is on the journey to be king. We don't know if it's Saul or Absalom that he's thinking of as an enemy that were literally, they, all they cared about was David dead. Let's just be rid of David and my life then is established. We don't know that, that, that that's what it was. Well, maybe it was, the, maybe it was the, the, some of the fear, some of the ways that he had, he had wrestled in his own mind, heart and mind to, to face off with Goliath. I mean, obviously, we don't get all the details of what happened inside of David, but we know David meets Goliath, this giant that dwarfed him. He's a kid. He's got a sling with five stones. He'd seen the Lord work. He'd seen the Lord deliver. He knew that what he needed, what Israel needed, was not was not power, was not, was, was, was not big weapons. They needed the Lord. I mean, maybe he's thinking back about how God had delivered Israel. I mean, obviously God had delivered Israel by this time. They were enslaved 400 years and, and crying out to the Lord, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And when he delivers them, he delivers them in a way that, that one, no one could take credit for. Not even Moses could really say, hey, look at what I did. But he didn't just deliver them to the other side of a sea. He destroyed the army and the people that oppressed them. He delivered them completely. I, I think of your works. I, and, and we know David had some understanding because the, the Genesis is, is Israel's first book as well as ours. right? It's the first book of the Pentateuch. And we know he knows that God created everything. This is by speaking. We know that he has this understanding of God's power and, and work in the world and how his hands shaped the world and shaped man. And we, he knows. But he thinks of his work and he recognizes the Lord alone can put life where death reigns, right? The Lord alone can bring life out of death. And, and then you follow that forward for us. And, and so as we look from the New Testament backwards and we begin to see how every work that Jesus did was restorative in nature. What was broken when Jesus was finished working on it was fixed. Deaf people who couldn't hear were made to hear. Lame people who couldn't walk were made to walk. There's one miracle that it talks about that right before their very eyes, the, the man's hand, the paralytic man's hand was, was stretched out and made whole. Everything from the shape and form of it to the strength that, that would hold things. Maybe, maybe, maybe no more powerful image than Lazarus being dead in the grave for four days. There's no chance that this man's still alive. Wrapped up in grave clothes. And Jesus walks up to that grave and says, Lazarus, come out. Talk about a dry and parched land. Talk about a place where life is not sustained and, and doesn't exist. In that tomb with Lazarus is a dry and parched land. And Jesus calls out and Lazarus, the man walks out of the grave. 
Maybe he hops out because he's wrapped up, you know, and then he's like, hey, help him get those clothes off because he's no longer dead. He's alive. The Lord alone can deliver from death to life. And David understands this and he knows this. And so he's crying out to the Lord because he knows the Lord alone is able to satisfy his thirsty soul. And by that we learn that the Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty soul. So what do we do? We make our plea to him. You know what it struck me? One of the first things that struck me about this psalm as David talked about his enemies is, is we never hear that David went to negotiate with them. He never went to them to seek relief from them. Hey, would you quit being so mean? You're making me feel bad about myself and I don't really like it. Right? He, he, he didn't go to them and plead with them he pled with God. Help me. I need you. I desperately, urgently need you. Help me. Hear my cry. Give me your mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. I know what I deserve. Don't give it to me. Hear me in your faithfulness. Answer me in righteousness. In righteous mercy. In just mercy. Answer me. How different would it be if all of our lives, if in all of our lives we recognized that he's the thing we need and therefore he was the thing we would desire? And just consider it for just a moment. How, how would that fix how you interact with others? How would that change how you interact with other people, what you demand other people to measure up to in your own understanding of what they should measure up to? How, how would that humble you according uh, in the way you handle others and walk with others and stand next to others and judge others and think of others and treat others. You know, here's a beautiful thing about the church is the Lord will meet our needs, one another's needs through the church. But he never demands that we go and take that from them. He tells us, look to me, look to my grace, look to my mercy. And then he puts that grace and he puts that in each of us so that we can then begin to hand it out. So that we don't feed off of one another as wolves eating off of one another, but so that we feed each other. So that we give to one another. So that we serve one another. And we find our own souls satisfied. That dry and parched land saturated with water from a well that never runs dry. So that we always have water to offer somebody else. We plead with him. Instead of arguing and fighting and despising and being angry, we plead with him. Help me. Hear my cry. Give me mercy. I can't make it. I, my, my enemies, those who have worked against me, those who have stood opposed to me, they have made me feel small and powerless. I need you. How can I stand here and give you something if he's not first giving it to me? The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls, so we make our plea to Him. The Lord alone, I, I, this is not part of the notes. I, just, I learned this recently. I, well, I've been learning it for years, but I'm learning it more fully as I go, get older. I turned 50 this year, and with that comes things like I've got a pinky now that is like, and it's getting, the knuckle's getting big at the end, and 
I don't know if you can see it from out there, but one's straight still. And one's turning over sideways. And I'm like, what is wrong? I was pointing at something the other day, and I don't know why I was using my piggy as a pointer. But I did. I was like, what in the world has happened to my pinky? For crying out loud. And that's just one way that 50 years old is showing itself. I was told recently, man, you've got a lot of gray in your beard. My body is not what it used to be. I mean, it's never been all that, but it's really less and less. And I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning. The reason that I, the, the reason is it has been my experience that every prayer meeting that I've been a part of has been mostly older folks is because they finally learned they can't do it on their own. Right? We, we're, when we're young, we think, oh, we can handle this. Maybe David's an old man when he's finally learning this lesson. I, I don't know. I was in a conversation there with the other day, and this guy was talking about his ministry and this, this dream he had, and, and he's like, I don't have a lot of time to talk. I, he said, I'm almost dead, so I just need to, we, no beating around the bush. Let me just tell you about this ministry. He said, I was talking with this kid, and I stopped him and said, how old was this kid that you're talking to? He said, 52. The guy's 80-something, right? So I know I'm still got, I still got room to grow, and I still got an understanding to, to grow into. I, I get that. I fully understand. But I'm learning. I can't do all that he's called me to do. I need him. And I plead with him regularly, not just for myself, but for you and for my brothers and sisters outside of this church, the missionaries we serve. I'm a much more prayerful person because I recognize I need him. And every day I look at that pinky and I remember I need him. If left to myself, this is what I got to look forward to. And believe it or not, so do you. You need him. So we make our plea to him. Sorry, that just came to my mind. I thought somebody needed to hear it, so here you go. The Lord alone, next. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls, so we submit our will to his. We submit our will to his. David calls on the Lord. He's like, deliver me from my enemies. I've, I've fled to you for refuge. Listen to this. He's, he's asking God to do a work. Teach me your, to do your will. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. You're my authority. You're the one that sits in the heavens. You're the one that sits over me. You're the one that says how things are to, supposed to be. You're the one who has the ability to say that. Teach me your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. This seeking and pleading of deliverance and teaching of will. David's calling on the Lord because he knows the Lord's will is better than his own will. Teach me, Lord, to do your will. Let me live in such a way. Let me conform my life to what you say is right and good and necessary instead of telling you always what I think is right and good and necessary. And this is a hard lesson to learn. This is a difficult, a difficult concept to, to consider. But he is God. We are not. His will is always better than ours. Kids, learn it now. Don't wait till you're an old person to, to, to suddenly realize and to determine that God has a plan for your life that's actually better than yours. I spent years of my life going my own way, le learning hard lesson after hard lesson after hard lesson to finally realize that what I was doing was not working. It's better to submit to his will and not know what tomorrow holds than be in the will of the one who, and walking in the will of the one who's called me to it. 
what we do on our own is never going to work. And, and by the, I, I don't mean you to say, I, I don't mean to direct you to go into life and say, hey, God, this is what I'm about to do. Will you bless it? That's not looking for his will. I, I, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't seek his blessing. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. So often as we talk about trying to live according to his will, we're talking about trying to get him to bless what we want to do. I'm talking about submitting ourselves, willfully setting down our will to his will. That means, parents, fulfilling the responsibility and role he's given you to your children. Teach them, train them, instruct them. But don't think that your protection of them is greater than his protection of them. Don't believe that you have a course chartered for your kids that's better than his. And not only is that true for your kids, that is true for you. Well, I'm unhappy about this circumstance. I'm discontent with this way of life. I'm this, I'm that. If the Lord wanted something different for you, you'd have it. You're right where he wants you to be. He has not made a mistake in your life. So instead of trying to find a way out, trying to find some different place, trying to find some extra blessing, trying to, trying to get him to anoint your, your life as it is, just give yourself to him. And here's what I, 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 I just am confident this will happen because I know the Lord. I know his faithfulness. I know his mercy. I know his justice. I'm confident as you do that, he will shape your heart to find satisfaction in him, even as you might be surrounded by less than peaceful circumstances in your life. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls, so we make our plea to him. We submit our will to his. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls, so we entrust ourselves to him. I don't think we'll ever make our plea to him or submit our will to his until we learn this last one. David puts all his eggs in this one basket. I entrust my soul to you. I need you to work or else I'm done. The Lord has to deliver David or his situation is hopeless. His circumstance is almost finished. And when we learn that our desires will only ever be satisfied in him and through him, we are finally going to begin to rest and depend wholly, completely upon him. If only we can learn this lesson. It's repeated all across the scripture. It's highlighted for us here. I couldn't help but think, as again, just as I walk through this, just how this is imaged and, and reflected across all of the scripture, all of the... And I, I, I began to think about Luke 15 and the, and the story of the son who left. And, you know, we call it oftentimes, we call it the prodigal son. Um, and then I read a book years ago by a guy named Tim Keller that talks about prodigal really means generous and, and giving. And, and it really is more, prodigal is more descriptive of God than it is the son. He was a wayward son. He went his own way, did his own thing. <clears throat> he leaves. He wants his life now. He wants to enjoy all that the Father has right now. Give me my inheritance, Dad. I'm, I'm going my own way. And the Father lets him. 
He finds himself destitute, hopeless, in despair, with one option. It's better to be a servant in the house of my father than feed these pigs and starve. So he gets up with this great plan and he heads home. I am your servant, Dad. Let me be your servant. Let me just live in your house and be your servant. The father who's been watching and waiting sees him coming a long way off and he runs out to meet him and he calls for a ring. And he calls for a cloak. My son who's dead is alive. This son who could only think of himself as a servant is suddenly told and shown the reality, you are my son. Kill the fatted calf. Today's a party. The dead is alive. Today we're going to celebrate. And I can't help but think as, as David is approaching the throne and he's pleading with God and he's calling out, I am your servant. He has no frame of reference for this yet. But God is looking down at him and saying, hey son, I'm here for you. In John 15, again, and we're going to actually sing a song about this in just a second. In John 15, again, Jesus sitting with his disciples. The, the end for him, the crucifixion is about to happen. It's the last night before his death. John 15, Jesus is talking about it. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you just figure this out, if you just learn this, if you just know this, I need you to know this. I'm about to go, and where I'm going, you can't come, but, but you need to know this. I am the vine, you are the branches. I have everything you need. Look to me. Your desires will be fulfilled in me. Life comes from me. The Lord alone is able to satisfy our thirsty souls. You don't have to look any further. He sent his son Jesus to show it to you, to give it to you, to bring us the satisfaction, the joy, the peace, the contentment, the, the fulfillment of all our heart desires is found in him. Let's pray.